Thank you, Gabe. We've, we've sung some pretty incredible promises this morning, haven't we? That picture of death and resurrection in baptism, Sam, thank you so much for bringing that to our attention. So there was a great experiment that was done in the desert in something called a, a biodome. You may remember this experiment from the early 90s where a group of researchers was living in this carefully controlled environment. It was all under, under a, a big glass sphere. They made a documentary about it called Spaceship Earth. But it was such a comical kind of event that they did a follow-on comedy called Biodome about it. I think Polly Shore was in it. But anyway, all of these researchers were living in this biodome. It was funded by this billionaire. And the goal was to create this perfect environment where you could grow uh, trees and watch plant and animal life flourish. At least that's what they thought they were going to do. And things went well at first, but quickly they found out that the trees in the biodome were not doing well at all. As a matter of fact, the trees, once they got to a certain height, the trunk was so weak that the tree would just topple over. And as they were thinking about their experiment, they realized one key ingredient that was left out of the biodome that was there to make the trees stronger, and that was wind. As it turns out, without wind, without some pressure and resistance against the side of a tree, the roots don't grow, the bark doesn't thicken up, and the tree is just going to fall over and die. So even that perfectly controlled environment, they were not able to do that. But if we're going to be honest, how many of us really want to create for ourselves a perfect little environment where we don't have to withstand harsh conditions and live in a harsh environment who doesn't want that for ourselves and from our kids where we don't have to deal with disruptions and outside influences and we strive to avoid these times of contrast and tension especially when life's daily challenges just seem like they're always pushing up against us how many times if a tree could talk would it start cursing during a windstorm? But this is how trees grow. Muscles don't grow without resistance. And as we grow, God introduces difficult and adverse circumstances in our lives. And these experiences are what develops our character. And this is what causes our spiritual roots to grow. But if we're going to be honest, how often... Would we also curse at that experience that comes into our life? So the question I want to talk about this morning is, how do I grow to maturity? How do I grow to maturity? When we grow deep, we too stand tall. And what is the godly approach when these adverse circumstances come in and seem like they're taking over and we do anything to get our way out of them? And yet God intends this to grow our faith. In the text today, we're going to look at 1 Samuel 25. We're seeing the growth of David. This is the shepherd boy that God is turning into a king, but that path is an extremely painful one. It won't be through simple circumstances. And continued restraint is what God is working out in David. 
And I will give a little bit of background of the passage I'm about to read. It starts at the very beginning of 1 Samuel 25 with the death of Samuel. And now Saul has acknowledged David was king. Samuel did his duty. He's passed on. And David then goes to a desert area, and he came across this rich man named Nabal. The name itself means foolish or foolishness. The men of David had acted as the protectors of Nabal and Nabal's shepherds and Nabal's flock. And in return, they've asked for some food because of what they have done. And this is where we pick up in verse 9. We're going to see the response of Nabal as David's servants have come and asked him uh, for some supplies as they continue uh, being out in the wilderness. So if you would please stand with me for 1 Samuel chapter 25. We're going to start at verse 9. Uh, this is, an, again, this is a lengthy reading. If you need to sit down during the reading, reading, feel free to do that. We'll start with verse 9 and work our way down through. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the, in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed from my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields, as long as we went with them. They were a, they were a wall to us, both by day, night and by day. All the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five sayas of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she heard and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. 
And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil should not be found in you so long as you live. I'm going to skip down to verse 32 now. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then down to verse 38, we see the conclusion of Nabal and about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. You may be seated. We're continuing this morning through the book of 1 Samuel, and we now see this crucial chapter sandwiched between chapter 24 and chapter 26. We get this story of this encounter of David and Nabal and this essential meeting with this woman named Abigail. The story of Nabal and Abigail is like beauty and the beast. Nabal's a harsh jerk, and the text says Abigail is beautiful and wise. And we're seeing this shepherd boy becoming a king. And this morning, we get a picture of the discipleship of David. Now, he's already been through harsh circumstances. But now we come to this chapter, and we see him responding as one who is growing in the Lord, one who is growing to maturity in similar ways that you and I need to be responding to circumstances so that we can grow in maturity. So this morning, I'd like to work through the text this way. First of all, we'll see that fools believe lies. We're going to take a look at the fool of the story. That's Nabal. He's the negative example. He's intentionally put in here so we can see how this turkey acts. Then we're going to see his wife. She's the wise one, and she does a lot more listening than she does talking. She seeks to understand the situation. Finally, we'll talk about how we grow to maturity, four actions that we see in David as he responds to what's going on in this chapter. It's crucial. He did the right thing in chapter 24, though he may not have fully understood why he, he let Saul go. It was out of reverence for God. And we see a continued unpacking of David in his heart. And then we'll see in chapter 26 uh, that he is, in fact, doing the right stuff for the right reasons, and he knows exactly why he's doing what he's doing. So let's start out with this first point, that the fool believes lies. The fools believe lies. And let's look at the fool in this passage. That word Nabal, the name itself, means foolish. Now, that'd be a horrible name to give your kid. And uh, it could be that the writer of 1 Samuel attached this name to him because it does mean fool. Uh, but that's what Nabal means. It could be his real name. Uh, and it certainly tells us something about him. And he makes some compounded errors. And uh, the text shares with us in verse 7 the message that he'd first received. So, verse 7, I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing, nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Now this is what David's men said to Nabal, look, we have been protecting the people that you've had out in the field. Nothing has happened to them. As a matter of fact, you saw there when the servants reported to Abigail, they said the same thing. Look, these guys were protecting us. 
and your husbands railed against them. So this was the appeal made to Nabal. But then how does Nabal reply? Look at verses 10 and 11. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed from my shears and give it to men who come from I do not know where? A couple of observations here. Nabal had believed some lies about David. He's actually accusing him of being nothing more than a runaway slave, a runaway servant. He has no allegiance. He has no loyalty to the one he was supposed to have loyalty to. Now, I'd be willing to give Nabal the benefit of the doubt. It's not like there were, you know, group texts or anything back then that you could have gotten all the info. But see, his wife knows exactly who David is. So he, in all likelihood had chosen to believe these things about David. It could be because he's stingy, but he's, remember, he's a fool. But he's chosen to believe just what's flying around on the rumor mill. And not only that, but he's responding very harshly to the kindness that's been shown to his shepherds and then to his shearers. And in the ancient Near East, it was the custom to show hospitality for people who have uh, done this kind of kindness to you and for you. And this would have been actually supplying very modest provisions to these men based on what Nabal had. He was a very wealthy man. He had a lot. Not to mention that David is the anointed one of God. His wife, Abigail, gets this. He's scheduled to be the king. So Nabal's acted very foolishly in this passage. And now he's gone down in the history of the scriptures of just kind of being dumb. The text says he was a Calebite. It's in reality, it's in it's against, should be against his nature and his his tribe to be acting this way. He would have known the commandments. He would have known that it says you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. But he makes this false accusation against God's anointed. It's so easy to do. When you look around the room and see your brothers and sisters in Christ, do you also see them as God's anointed? One whom God has put in his Holy Spirit, that one is receiving the Spirit of God, somebody that's saved, somebody that's been adopted into the family of Christ? Because I think if we really did that, we would be so much less apt to believe what we hear about each other. So much less apt to make false accusations against each other. And it's so easy to fall into that trap of slander and rush into a judgment, even if it comes from somebody you trust. And Jim Cimbala, he's a pastor in Brooklyn. If you've heard of the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir, uh, Jim is a pastor there at that church. And he gets this. He thinks it's one of the most dangerous, if not the most dangerous activity that happens in any church He said, I know what most easily destroys churches. It's not crack cocaine, government oppression, or even lack of funds. Rather, it's gossip and slander that grieves the Holy Spirit. It's a hard issue. Be very careful in what you decide to believe when you hear something about someone else. Be very slow to believe it. 
Do what's wise. The wise thing to do, and we see it here in this passage, opposed to what the fool does, is to seek understanding. Seek understanding. Again, this is a story of beauty and the beast, Nabal the beast. Uh, despite foolishness, married Abigail. Now, this is one of those frustrating situations when, you, when you, you see this woman that seems to be offering so much beauty and wisdom. Like, well, why did she marry this guy? I don't know. It happened. Um, and she's described in verse 3 as being discerning and beautiful. At first I thought, well, maybe she's a gold digger. But I don't think that's the case. She wouldn't be so wise and discerning if she was a gold digger. We don't get that impression. This is probably an arranged marriage. She does, though, completely understand the dumb thing that her husband has done. And David, when he heard Nabal's response, what does he say to his men? Strap on your swords. We're not taking this junk from this guy. No way. We're going to go. We're going to take care of business. And he's ready to kill every single male in this household because of this response that Nabal has given. And a servant comes to Abigail, and, she, and he explains what's going on. David's men treated us well, and she immediately knew what to do. She gets all that good food and all that good wine, and she throws it on those donkeys, and she says to those guys, run, get to David right now, or everybody's going to be dead. They take off. She sends in the donkeys. Then look at verses 24 through 26. She fell at his feet and said, on me alone. My Lord, when she says, my Lord, she's referring to David. On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears. Hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. You may have heard the, <laughs> you heard in Forrest Gump, stupid is as stupid does, right? <laughs> Nabal is his name and folly is with him, but I... Your servant did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. Now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. Look at the humility and the contrition that's going on here. And notice, first of all, now she calls out Nabal for what he did. But you know what? At least she is still using her wisdom to preserve her foolish husband. You see how the godly person responds to a spouse's foolishness. She preserves and protects, but doesn't ignore the foolishness. Because we all act foolishly sometimes. Don't throw your spouse under the bus and make things work worse. Don't Try to humiliate them more in front of people. If you're wondering how to keep from further humiliating your spouse when they've done something silly, just ask my wife. She's got to do it all the time. <laughs> she saves her husband's life, even though he got him, almost got himself killed. And in addition to honoring her foolish husband, she also recognizes who David is. As God has recognized who David is. And we see how this godly person responds to other godly people by, by helping them rather than opposing them. We're on the same team. And we have here a woman who took the time to understand. And it's essential as disciples of Christ that we learn this art of understanding. Uh, I find it fascinating that when you go through the pages of the New Testament, this is according to Google. I didn't take the time to count this up. 
Jesus asked 307 questions, but he was only asked 183. And he's the one that knew all the answers. How much more should we follow the example of Christ? You know, when we stop and we ask questions about things, when, when something happens, when an offense has gone on, to stop and slow down the emotions and to seek understanding. Okay, what's, what's going on here? I heard you said this. You did this. What's up with that? Why did you do that? Am I misunderstanding something? This doesn't make sense to me. This, this actually hurt when I heard this. Is it true? It slows down the emotions, the process of judgment. It slows down the offense. It slows down the confrontations. It prevents your emotions from running away from you. It's important that we understand the situations that we find ourselves in, that God puts us in. That's what this wise woman does here. She listens to that servant. She hangs on the words. And then she knows what to do. She understood. She ran out to David. So let's turn our attention to David now and his responses in this chapter. There's actually four responses that I find, and we're going to seek to answer that question. Okay, how do I grow to maturity? And we participate in this. We always give God the glory when we find ourselves. If you catch yourself and say, oh, I'm really growing, praise God. Okay? We participate in this, but we always thank Him for doing the work in us. So look at these responses. There's four responses. The first of all, listen. Listen. And the structure of 1 Samuel 25, and this happens often uh, in the Scriptures, there's this literary uh, structure going on called a chiasm. It's called a, a chiastic structure. It's because um, there's a Greek letter X, and there's a series of statements, and you'll see how they, they structure out when we do this. But in chapter 24, um, we see these mirrored responses. Again, I mentioned this earlier. In chapter 24, David spares Saul's life. And in chapter 26, again, David spares Saul's life. We thought he learned, to, we thought he learned his uh, lesson back in chapter 24. He didn't. So you've got those mirrored statements. But then as you keep reading on, you'll see that Nabal acts foolishly when he insults David. And then later on, after the meeting that David and Abigail have, he acts foolish again, and he gets drunk. So in the middle, and that's what you're looking for when you find this kind of a structure. They're, again, they can be hard to spot, but they tell us so much when we recognize it. In the very middle, we see David pauses, and even in his rage, he listens to Abigail. Now, that, that is what we're digging out here. When, when we spot this kind of a structure, we see David listening, and she, she is speaking with a lot of wisdom. It, and this is huge because he's willing to hear what she has to say. Women were often treated like second-class citizens. Clear into the, the New Testament and clear on out. Uh, but this is essential in growing to maturity as followers of Jesus Christ. You know, the only way that we came to saving faith in Jesus Christ is because we listened to the gospel when it was told to us. That's where it starts. Whether it was through the Word of God or through someone who explained to us what the Word of God was saying, but that listening is key. And it's going to be key throughout our life. We listen, hear, 
How many times do the Scriptures command us to hear? There's a great summary in James 1.19 of practically this whole section. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Boy, if we could just put those three simple statements into action. Quick to hear, and then slow down. Slow down. That leads us to this second response, response and that is to restrain restrain. Think about David as a young man. You know, in his youth, he didn't just rely on the sword. And we know from that early, when he, when he had that, that battle with Goliath, he refused to take the sword. He knew good and well that this battle was not going to be won through might, but by the power of God. In 17, uh, 1 Samuel 17, 47, he says, it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. Now, David, in this moment, he needed to recall back what he was saying as a kid because he's acting very impetuously and he's about to act very violently. It's not going to bode well for him if he continues that attitude as a future leader. But again, this chapter is sandwiched between chapters 24 and 26. In neither of those does David kill Saul. And this demonstrates that violence, even if it's for a just cause, is not something David can initiate. He's got to restrain his desire to exact revenge. And he has the power to do it. He has the power to take revenge. He knows that he shouldn't. Restraint is also key in the Christian walk. It's key. We have to restrain ourselves in so many ways. God has given us desires. He seeks to fulfill those desires in his ways. But as disciples of Christ, we restrain ourselves we restrain ourselves sexually until God gives us that, that marriage partner. We restrain ourselves with our finances. We don't just spend it on whatever we want to. We don't act just on our whims. We don't just spew out in anger. Wait, restrain, rather. Restrain yourself. Restrain yourself from retaliation. And that brings us to the third response, which is to wait, wait. Patience was called for in this passage. David continues to show how he's a man after God's own heart. He patiently waits on God's plan. He waits on his timing for God's means to accomplish the goal. God's going to take the life of Nabal. God's going to exact revenge. But it's God who does it in his perfect time, in his perfect way. When Nabal had been shown this incredible act of kindness by his wife, and what's he do? At the end of the chapter, he gorges himself on food, he gets drunk, and it says the Lord strikes him dead. Waiting is hard. It's always part of God's plan. Clear back to those early Christians, many of whom thought that Christ's second coming was going to be imminent, so much so that when he went back up into the sky, Many of them witnessed that. It was called the, the, transfi- the, the, the ascension, rather, not the transfigure. It was the ascension, and they, they saw it happen. They thought, well, he's going to be coming right back down. Any minute now, he's going to return. Well, he didn't, not in their lifetime. They waited, and they endured pain and torture and suffering. And we wait, and we long, and we wait, and we wait. It's not going to be forever. 
We wait while the world's on fire, and yes, it's getting worse. In the meantime, don't think that it's just going to take the perfect Facebook post to make it all right. Change everybody's minds. I don't think it works that way. We've got to wait. Our utopia won't happen until Christ comes back. What do we do in the meantime? And this is number four. Discover. Well, discover what? Discover the change that needs to take place in your own life. As we become more mature in the faith, we discover the areas of change needed in one's life that's oftentimes unexpected. David recognized that he would have had a blood-guilty conscience, is what the text calls it, if he had gone on with his act. He realized, I was too fast to strap on the sword. I was moving too quickly. I was trying to seek vengeance. An event happens in your life, and you listen to the facts you restrain your emotions so you don't sin. You wait and see what God does. And then you discover things about yourself. If you're ever curious, if you feel like you don't have a lot of self-awareness, what you need to do is get married, okay? <laughs> One of my best friends said that, you know what, Chad? Getting married was like having a full-length mirror put right in front of me. I was told I was selfish and self-centered growing up. And then I found out that I really was. As a matter of fact, there's this one chair in our bedroom that I just, I just watch it pile up with clothes instead of taking the 10 seconds to just... I was so convicted yesterday, I made sure everything was hanging up before I got up here to preach this message. <laughs> but it's like, you know, I wouldn't want to live with somebody who was sloppy and leaving things laying around. I... It's okay, we're growing, right? <laughs> we discover sins in our hearts. We, we have the opportunity to turn and repent. And we do, we ask for forgiveness. And this is the, the lifelong growth cycle of discipleship, right? It doesn't stop. We don't just hit a magic age where all of a sudden we arrive. No, the, the final step of your discipleship is the death of your physical body. And then, down the road, we'll get a new one. We won't struggle with the stuff we have to struggle with now. But till then, we're going we're to struggle. That is the growth process of the disciple of Jesus Christ. So putting this together, grow in Christ by listening to wisdom, restraining yourself, waiting on God, and discovering your sin. Wait and discover. You know, in closing, I want to mention a, another kind of tree. This is not one that was grown in the biodome. It's called a bristlecone pine. Maybe you have seen one of these, maybe you have not. But they're, they're amazing trees. They grow in the West. Um, there's some really old ones out in California. And they can grow as high as two or three miles above sea level in really the harshest of environments. And they only have uh, a thin layer of bark on their trunks. And they can live for thousands of years. But considering the habitat of these trees, they, they live in rocky areas with bad soil, uh, not much precipitation, that it seems incredible they could even live this long at all. But it's actually all of these terrible and harsh uh, attributes of their environment that cause them to live as long as they do. 
And it actually changes them deep down on like the cellular, <laughs> I can't even say the word. Down on the cellular level, it says that these canals are formed with, with the plant resin going into different places. But, but the point is, and this is what one re re researcher said, bristlecone pines in richer conditions grow faster, but they die earlier soon and decay. It's the harshness of their surroundings that create this longevity. Now, that's true in our individual lives. It's true in the church. The church has not flourished in times of ease. The church hasn't flourished when things have just been going well. The church hasn't flourished when the government was overly amicable to the church and its mission and purpose. No, it's been in times of harsh persecution. That's going to happen to us corporately, and that's going to happen to you in your individual life. You are going to go through harsh, difficult times, but take heart, because guess what? It's through that difficulty that God is growing your roots deeper, making you more stable, and turning you more into the person of Jesus Christ. Please pray with me. Almighty God, you know all too well that we would never choose difficulty for ourselves. Lord, we count on you to put us in the harsh environments of your choosing to make us into the people that you would have us to be. God, there's, there's no joy in being anything less. And God, I pray that you would help us to respond well when adversity comes through the many different ways it comes, God, through uh, broken relationships, through harsh words, through slander, through insults. God, we, we, we're all guilty of it. Forgive us. Help us to take time, understand situations, restrain ourselves. Lord Jesus, it, it was you who showed us the ultimate restraint. You could have decimated mankind by your very thought, but you stayed on a cross so that we could be forgiven of our sins. And I ask that you would help us as we participate in this process of becoming a disciple of Jesus and being a disciple to share those same qualities. We thank you for your forgiveness when we fail. And it's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. I want to make um, two quick announcements. Uh, I mentioned last week that we were forming a search committee. We've actually got that committee together. We're probably going to add one more elder to the committee, but as it stands so far, it'll be uh, Joanna Swanson, Marlon Norling, Dennis Meaner. As a matter of fact, if any of you are here, if you just stand up when I would read your name, just so folks know who I'm talking about, if um, we could be praying for them, um, Sue Martin and Robin Hoffman. So I think, Dennis, I think you're the only one at this. Yeah, please be praying for this search committee as we're looking for our next associate pastor. And then secondly, if the Allen family would please come up to the front of the auditorium. The Allens, unfortunately, are getting ready to move to Laramie. Uh, Scott's got a new job opportunity there. So, yeah, I'm not happy about it either, you know? <laughs> Feel free to pray against this, by the way. <laughs> Although it seems like it's God's will. So we're going to lift up um, Zara, Scott, Leslie, and, and Dalton and Brenton's, okay. Brenton's not here right now. Let's lift them up in prayer. 
Almighty God, I'm so thankful for the Allens. I'm thankful for the impact they've had here at First Baptist and all the ways that they have served and glorified you and been a blessing to this body. And God, now we lift them up as they're making this transition that you would be preparing that place for them, that you'd be preparing a church family that they'll be serving with. And I pray that they would be a blessing to others as those others are a blessing to them as well. Give them safety and travel. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. And I suppose if anybody would like to come up and... Is this your... This isn't your last, last Sunday, is it? Or is it your last, last... It could be. The kids and I are here through July for baseball. Okay. He's been gone for a month. Yeah, Scott's, Scott's kind of in and out. But if you'd like to come up and say goodbye to them, I'm sure they'd appreciate it. Otherwise, have a wonderful Sunday, and you're dismissed. Have a great day. By the way, if anyone's in need of prayer also, feel free to come up, and uh, Gary and I will be here to pray with anybody in need.